I can't stress enough that you've got to get the blueprint right. If you don't get the blueprint right, you'll end up hiring the wrong staff. It's not the staff that you've hired that's the problem. It's just that they haven't fitted in with your blueprint. When they come to work for you, they want to know a structure to work within. They want to know what they're responsible for and what their outcomes that they're responsible for and how it works. If you don't have that structure and you expect them to develop that structure for you, it's not going to happen. So you need to have that structure. You're listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 204 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. To find and retain great staff is probably the biggest challenge most of us face. If we can get this right, then growing our practice becomes much easier. Here are some tips and tricks from Ed Chen of Wise Mentoring and Chen Inela, honed over decades of trial and error. to find great staff and hold onto them it's an easy question to ask but it's a very difficult topic how to read people how to get a sense whether they would fit or wouldn't fit that's probably the biggest question and the biggest challenge that most accountancy practices have and often when i talk to practitioners their biggest challenge is to find good staff but i think they've got it the wrong way around because they do it the wrong way around they end up with the wrong type of people they run their practices on the basis of a needs and a needs basis. So if I need someone, I'll just go hire somebody and then I'll throw people at my problem. And the more people I have, the less problems I should have. But actually you get end up with more problems if you don't do it right. So as I said, it's the other way around. You've got to create a blueprint of the ideal team structure and Once you've developed that blueprint, then you can find the right people. And if you then find the people to suit that blueprint, then not only is it easier to find those people, but then they stay longer because they're in their flow. They're working in their flow. If you put people into the wrong seat on the bus and they're not in their flow, they might be able to fake it for a few years, but eventually they'll burn out and they'll leave because they're not in their flow and you've got to get them in their flow. And if you don't have a blueprint of what you feel is the ideal team structure, then you'll end up just hiring all sorts of people all over the place and just reacting to your workload. And it's a bit like building a house without an architect's plans or an architect's blueprint. And if you were to try to build a house without the architect's blueprint, then you can imagine what the house will turn out like. And often accountancy practices uh, like that, that, you know, their team structures are all over the place. And I use the example of, you know, the water has to run through, a, the workload is the water and it has to run through the pipe. And if you don't design that pipe properly, you'll have leakage all over the place and then you'll have to try and hold everything together through brute force. And uh, accountants that, run their practices that way, work very long hours to try and hold everything together. So now in WISE Mentoring, which is the program we develop for accounting firms, they've got the ideal team structure in there. 
Yes, uh, and I think place. we touched on the ideal team structure in the last episode. Do you remember okay. when we spoke about team structure? And there you touched on it and you suggested that for a million dollar fee, you have the partner at the top. Yes. Then you have a client manager. Yes for that million dollar fee of course the partner could cover more than a million dollars it's yeah. just that per team Actually, one team can cover a million dollars partner's not in that team so the partner yes. sits above that team so the so client the, manager is the one that's in charge yes. of that team very yes. good point so for a million dollar fee parcel you would have the client manager supported by a client manager assistant Yes, the assistant word? client manager. Yeah, yep. assistant client manager. Yep. And then you have five grinders, of which the most senior one is the senior production manager. Correct. And then you have four other grinders. And then this team will work on a million-dollar parcel, but, of course, there could be more teams in that office. So Correct. I think you have one office that has a $4 million turnover, so that means you probably have four teams in there, Correct. so four client managers with 20 grinders allocated to these four teams. Correct. That's very good. (laughs) You you, um, repeated that very, very well. That's exactly right. And if you have that blueprint, then you can go and hire the right people. So the client manager is not the same personality as the senior production manager. And the assistant client manager has a different personality to the grinders. And if you hire people for that ideal team structure, then you'll find that it's easier to find them and also they'll stay longer. Why is it easier? It's because the ratio of the grinders to the minders is generally five to one. So the client managers are much harder to find, but then you've then isolated it to one in that team rather than six in that team. So often when you run your team structures very flat, and what I mean by that is, you know, the the person's looking for, the owner's looking for this person who's great, a great grinder, really quick and accurate, but also has great interpersonal skills and communication skills and has great rapport with the clients. Well, not many people are like that. And if you're looking for that person, then... They're very rare to find, and hence the accountants say to me, oh, it's really hard to find staff because they're looking for that superstar, so to speak, and they're very hard to find. And when you do find them, you've got to pay them a lot of money, and if you want to retain them, you've got to keep paying them a lot of money. And in the meantime, recruitment agencies are constantly trying to headhunt them off of you. So you're in this situation where, you know, you feel like, you know, you're, you're beholden to your staff. And the problem is not the staff. The problem is your the wrong team structure. You've got the wrong team structure in place. So that's forced you to hire the wrong, you know, this is forced you to, to hire this superstar. Now, if you did it the way we, we suggest in wise mentoring, which is to have five grinders to one minder, then your ratio is one to five. So if you had three teams, uh, three teams of a million dollars each of, of six people, then You've got three client managers, which are hard to find, compared to 15 grinders, which are much easier to find. So all of a sudden, finding staff becomes easier. easier, And then retaining staff is easier because Mm. the grinders just want to do grinding. And if you try to get them to talk to clients and be a minder, then they'll leave, you know, and they can fake it for a little while, but eventually they'll burn out because... If you're a grinder and you like to just sit there and do the work and you're asked to 
talk to clients and get more you know fees out of them and be a finder and you know and be proactive and all this kind of stuff well you might be able to fake it for a, a month or so but eventually you'll gravitate back to what your natural state is and then the partners will get upset with you and they'll put more pressure on you and then you'll feel like oh you know this isn't for me and i'll see if it's if it's greener on with us another firm so the answer to your question about you know how do you find good staff and retain them comes back to your your organization chart in your ideal team structure your blueprint the blueprint that you have and to then hire people to match that blueprint rather than the other way around does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, it very much does. Apologies if you already alluded to that and I didn't pick it up. How would you structure the team if you don't have a million dollar fee yet? Would you still build the house immediately at that size or would you first start with just one or two grinders and maybe the client manager also does some grinding work or would you immediately put the structure in place because then you have the engine at the capacity you need and then you just try to find clients as soon as possible no don't do it like that you'll go broke <laughs> the smaller you are the more the owner will have to hold those positions i talk about in wise mentoring i talk about withdrawing yourself and the first thing to withdraw from is the grinding so you obviously so when you're very small and you're doing everything you're doing the grinding and the minding and everything the first person you bring on board is the grinder right? and then that takes a lot of grinding off you so you're just doing the minding the communication the the interpersonal skills relationship type work with the client and then as you get bigger then you can hire a more senior production person and that could be eventually be your senior production manager right and then eventually as the fees get larger again you might be able to hire an assistant client manager to help you with the communication with the c and d class clients and then that you, you grow into your million dollars and the million dollars is where you want to get to per team but you've got to do it slowly and slowly withdraw from each of those positions find your staff do you place newspaper ads or how do you find staff just a combination of newspaper ads um, facebook ads yes and uh you know recruitment agencies just wherever you can if you can reach out as far as you can then hopefully and, and also from within because you you know your young people are coming through and uh some of them are showing potential for being a client manager so they become an assistant client manager so you're constantly looking at a team filling the gaps and if someone left then a particular gap is opened up and then you would then you know hire certain people or promote certain people within existing teams to fill those gaps so um, it's just a combination of everything. Looking at your staff, you have 160 staff, of which one is the um, marketing manager, Ricky, and then you have 16 staff overseas, of which four work in marketing. So that means you have 12 production staff. Looking into the near future, which one do you think will grow more, your staff in Australia or your staff overseas? Because of a ratio of, of client managers to grinders, the staff overseas, because they're, they're all grinders over there. 
So I can see that growing much faster than the, the local staff because the local staff will end up being client managers or assistant client managers or senior production managers. But the rest of the grinders, the junior grinders, the bookkeepers, that will be all overseas, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd imagine. So the long-term idea is that the client manager is in Australia, but all at least three or four, possibly all five grinders will be overseas. Correct. Once you've found the staff and you've put them into um, the right team structure, then you've got to provide training and leadership. You can get the best staff in the world, but if you don't provide leadership to them, you'll lose them. You need to, as the owner or the CEO of your business, you need to lead and you need to motivate, you need to encourage, you need to train, educate and uh, help them with their careers. So you've got to spend that time leading them and without good leadership you'll still lose them so you you not only have to have the right team structure then you find the right people and then you need to then put in the right training but then you have to lead them as well and to to motivate them and to encourage them and so forth so yes probably that last last ingredient would be the leadership for the team so to come back to your team structure i apologize Uh, do you know how many teams you have so meaning how many client managers do you have? I don't know, to be honest, because they're right around Australia and some of the teams are very small, so they're building up to a million dollars. So they might only have, you know, they might one team might only be 500,000 and they're building up to a million dollars, so they might just have one client manager and, and two grinders, as an example. But they're all building up to this. But you have 11 offices, so you would have at least 11 client managers. No, no, that's not no? that's not right. Because some of the offices, like Melbourne, is at $4 million and yes, some yes. of them are at 600000 Exactly. So mm. Melbourne would have four client managers because they had $4 million. They've got four client managers and four assistant client managers. Okay, yeah, they have four client Sorry. managers and four assistant client, client managers. managers. Okay, and these, I forgot about the assistant client manager. The assistant client manager would also stay in Australia. Yes. yes. Okay. Because they do all the, you know, the meetings, the communication, the, that yes. kind of thing. Okay, so that means long term you have all client managers and you have all assistant client managers in Australia. Mm. Yes. When you do public speaking, etc., I heard you several times saying that you hire for attitude, not so much for skills, but for attitude. How do you test attitude in an interview? It's interesting because if you get it wrong, it can cause you so much, so much problems. But if you get it right, it's just, it's just so good. So you've got to get it right. But how do you get it right? Okay, so I always start with attitude because you can teach someone skills but you just can't teach them attitude how do you find out whether somebody has the right attitude there is sally she walks through the door she says hi ed what do you ask or what do you do to find out what her attitude is like well the attitude is an attitude of self-interest or the attitude is about your business so if she talks if she asks you no questions about your business and she only just talks about herself, then there's only a self-interest in her personality. 
And self-interested people are not interested in your business. If they're not interested in your business, then you know, she's got the wrong, he or she's got the wrong attitude. So the attitude should be about, you know, about the business, how they can add value to your business, not how you can add value to them. Because some people come in and want to know what you can do for them rather than what they can do for you. So that's the first thing, you know, how they can, if they talk about how they can help your business and what they can do and how they can feel like they can add value to what you're doing. So that's the first thing. The second thing, obviously, is about being able to get along with someone. Most people, you know, will know when they meet someone whether, whether they, they can like get them. along. Yeah, so that's that's important as well. And that's just human chemistry. You just feel it. Correct. And uh, But I don't put liking someone above production. So productivity surpasses everything. And it even surpasses attitude. So if you had someone with great attitude, but very, very slow and, and low in production versus someone who's got okay attitude, but highly productive, very quick at what they do, and they can do things much, much quicker than the average person, I'd still hire the second person. So production is above everything. Mm. But how do you find out if somebody is really fast? First thing you got to do is make sure you like them, make sure they've got a good attitude. And then generally they're the easy things that you can find. You know, you, there's a rapport there and that kind of thing. And then you can tell whether they're talking about themselves all the time or whether they've got an interest in your business. So you can tick those boxes reasonably easily. The hardest one is how productive are they? And you know, that's the third bit. And it doesn't matter what psychometric testing you do or what reports they print out. It doesn't matter what CV they give you because they, some of them get the CV's done professionally, so that it all looks really good. And it doesn't matter what references they give you because they won't pick a, someone who will give them a bad reference. They'll always pick someone who will give them a good reference. So none of that matters. The only thing that matters is whether they can do the work. And so the best way to test that is to give them something to do. So if you're hiring them as a bookkeeper, give them some books to do. Get them to do a BAS, you know, even pay them to do it. You can then, me and then measure how quickly they do it. So just recently, one of the members that I coach was hiring um, someone from overseas. They uh, isolated it down to three. So three good ones. They passed the attitude. They passed getting along with somebody and uh, they liked them. So, But there was three. So who do you choose? So they gave them a task to do and then they timed each of them And candidate one did it in 50 minutes, candidate two did it in 15 minutes, and candidate three did it in 55 minutes. So who would have got the job? Candidate two. Two, correct, because she was quick and, and fast. You can only know that by testing them. And in the old way, as I would have got them in, you would have found out in the first three months because you would have given them work to do and then they would either not know how to do it or they'll be very, very slow at doing it, then, you know, you've got all the costs and you've wasted three months and you've got to start again. So this way is probably the better way. Testing is the best way to do it. And um, Do you often test them here in the office or do you often get the recruitment agent to test them? It depends on the situation. Like this particular example I used was the recruitment agency did that. So they said, here's the test that I want you to do it in and they measured The recruitment agency measured the time it took them to do the task. Mm. Because that would take a little bit of time to set up a test. Yes. So you need to get it all ready so that you're comparing apples with apples. 
I've found that that's the best. Whether it's in marketing or accounting or bookkeeping, it's mm. or yes. you know, reception work. So, do you usually use a recruitment agency, or oh, it's just a combination of both? Yeah. Yeah. And when they come directly to you through a, a newspaper ad, do you then do the tests here? Yes, we do okay. the tests here. Yes. How do you motivate? I, I know it sounds like a very simple question, but it's very difficult. How do you motivate people? If you hire the wrong person, you've got to try and motivate them. But yeah, if you hire the right person and you put them in the right seat, it motivates themselves. The kind of people that you want, Heidi, are the ones that um, are production orientated. What motivates them is doing the work and finishing the work off. If you find the right people who are production orientated, you don't need to motivate them because finishing a job is enough motivation for them. If you have the wrong person in that seat, you've got to try and stimulate them constantly and it's just too hard work. And it's the difference between managing from top down, control and command, and managing from bottom up so that they empower themselves and they run the business for you. So it's much better for it to be bottom up so and, and through empowerment. So that entails getting your blueprint right, hiring the right people for the right seats, and then showing some leadership, you know, motivation, production, getting them all working together as a team and um, turning it into a game. So there's a, an objective you want to achieve and generally that's turnover and productivity and fast turnaround. So you create some KPIs and then you lead them. So you manage and you lead them. And then that, that itself, that game of um, not just coming into work and just doing work objective and that game is a thing that motivates them and then you have rewards you know you have rewards for achieving and then it's not just work it's an interesting um, game that you come to work every day and you look forward to it you look forward to the next um, challenge and that comes down to leadership the rewards what do rewards look like everybody's different some people want more time off some people want more money so you tailor it around everybody's preferences everybody's different so i see so um, you actually talk to everybody and say absolutely. what would you like to have if you hit your kpis yes absolutely otherwise you could set up a reward and it doesn't matter to that person it won't motivate mm -hmm. them yes. and what would a kpi look like for a grinder, for an assistant client manager, for a client manager? There's two KPIs. There's the KPI, individual KPI, which you, for a grinder is just is their timesheets. So they've got to have, you know, a consistently high productivity in their timesheet and uh, no write-offs. That's for a grinder. For a, um, a minder, a client manager, it's um, they're responsible to get the tax returns out and lodged so their KPI is getting their, the clients work out the way, lodged on time, the client's happy. So low work in progress? Yes, low work in progress, low debtors, because they're responsible for the debtors, and uh, happy staff, happy clients. They're sort of the KPIs that you need. How do you assess happy clients and happy staff? Do you do 
client reviews? Yes, we do surveys. For every job that's finished, a survey goes out. Oh, really? And, and they, what's the response rate? They're generally very high because if they're not high, then we get straight onto it. So we know whether they're happy or not happy. And obviously, if they're not happy, we fix it. So generally, if you have that kind of an attitude and uh, you're continuously trying to improve what you do, then the replies mm. are generally very, very high. And then from there, you know, you'll get a Google review out of it. Really automatically or you, oh, ask, no. them, you ask them to leave a Google review? Uh, some of them do because they're so happy with your work. And the fact that you ask them for a survey, they go off and they do a Google review. I see. So they do that out of their own volition. You don't ask them to do that. Sometimes you do. You I ask see. them. Yeah, if mm. you feel that it's appropriate, you know, you just drop the hint. A Google review would be nice if you, you know, can find it in your time. But not everybody is internet savvy. So some people don't know how to do that and you need to have a Google account to be able to do that. So we found about 50% of the clients knew how to do that, 50% didn't know how to do that. So generally if someone didn't know how to do that, you, you don't bother asking them or, and then if you knew someone, some, some people you know they're going to give one to you and they know how to do it and they're going to give one to you because that's their personality. And then other times, you know, you know that they know how to do it, then you just, you know, drop a hint. Hmm. But, you know, so it's just a softly, softly kind of thing. It's not a not an expectation. So to be such a note and ask you such a detailed <laughs> question, but how many questions do you have on the client review? Because I can imagine that is instrumental to having a good client review reply rate. I can imagine if it's too long, then yes. your reply drops to zero. Yes, how many 100%. do you have? Three questions or no, five No, I think questions? it's five. Yeah. Okay. So from memory, I think it's but five, five So reasonably short, just a quick yes. general feedback of whether Correct. they are happy. Correct. Do you find that the deeper structure you have allows for more career progression? Well, we're always trying to give them a career progression anyway, but it depends on whether they're a grinder or a minder. If they're a grinder, the maximum they can get to, the highest level they can get to is a senior production manager. They can't go any higher than that because they just don't have the skills, the communication skills to be a minder, a client manager. So if a graduate comes out and he or she's got potential for a client manager because they've got the interpersonal skills, communication skills, the personality, then they can their career is all the way through to a client manager. And then, you know, as a client manager, there could be, you know, shareholding opportunities. So we don't run it as a partnership. We run it as a corporation. So they'll, they could buy into the practice with shareholdings as well. I see. So the client manager often has a shareholding in the company. Yeah, sometimes. Not very often, but sometimes they do. And um, we have that opportunity for them. Do you often have it that a grinder would like to move into a client manager position, but you don't see the potential? All the time, <laughs> because generally the client manager earns more money than the grinder. And when they say they want to be a client manager, you've got to really find out why, why they want to. Is it for the money or is it because they feel that they can, you know, really thrive in that position? And I've had situations where, you know, a person's got to a senior production manager and then she wanted to go to a client manager and she clearly was not a client manager. And we had to really drill down and find out what the motivation was. Because if you address the symptom and not the problem, then you'll just keep coming up. So if you, for example, 
if that person wanted to go to a client manager because she wants to earn more money, okay, so you'll set that person up for a fall because you'll promote her to a position where it's beyond what she can do and then you'll get upset with her. She might even leave because she thinks that she couldn't do the job. She'll go and find a job in another firm as a client manager. She'll fail and then she'll leave a wake of, you know, wake of jobs that's failed for her. So you really, in that situation, you really need to show some leadership. So in this particular example, we found out that it wasn't the client manager that she really wanted. She wanted to earn more money. Okay, so the way that we can, firstly, it's the education, is saying to her, you know, you're really, really good at what you do here. Stay in your flow. Don't try and be somebody you're not because you'll set yourself for a fall, but you're really good as a senior production manager and stay in that lane. Don't try and change lanes. And then because we found out it was more about the money, then we put a bonus system in so that if their team achieved a certain EBIT, then they would, the whole team would get a bonus. So, so we address the problem, not the symptom. So, mm. it, it, so, so that's where leadership comes in, yes. and you've got to yes. really drill down into finding what it is. And also, when someone says they want more money, it could be something else. And you give them more money, that just treats the symptom. And in three or four months' time, if you don't get rid of the problem, if you don't, if you don't scratch the real itch, yeah. which is the problem, yeah. they'll either then ask for more money or they'll mm. leave. And I've seen that happen all the time. It's just that people react and they think that by having more money, it will address the problem. It addresses it only for three or four or five months, but the underlying reason for their unhappiness is still there and then they end up leaving. So you really need to, you know, get to the bottom of it. And that's where the leadership comes in and understanding your staff and uh, knowing, you know, their strengths and their weaknesses and, and often... You need to know them better than they can than they know themselves as a leader. What factors show you whether somebody has potential to be a client manager or doesn't? Oh, that's an easy one. Yes. That's just the ability to communicate. Somebody who's a senior production manager they would have to motivate the whole team. They would already have had to do quite a lot of communication within their team, motivate everybody. No, that's no. different. When you talk to another accountant, if you're an accountant and you're talking to another accountant, you can use all the technical nerd talk. To nerd. Yes, you can say, you can say debit loan accounts. You know, you can say you know, debtors, creditors. You mm. can say division seven, eight. Everybody understands you. It's when you communicate to a client that you've got to be good because they don't understand those technical terms. I can imagine that point is easy to learn, just it's, to say, okay, don't say accounts receivable under no, under no circumstances, say debtors, say money people owe you. That, no, that's it's, easy it's, to learn. I think it's more the, the likable being... No it's, no, it's not. No, it's not that. It's really hard to train someone to do that, surprisingly. So I'll give you an example. So a client comes in and you say to him, you've got a tax bill of $30,000. And then he says, but I've got no money in the bank. So to pay $30,000 in tax, my profit must have been 100000 but there's no money in the bank. Now, you've got to be able to explain to that client why he has a $30,000 tax bill, even though there's no money in the bank. And not everybody can explain that in layman's terms. But accountants can explain it in accounting terms. 
they'll say something like this. Oh, yeah, but you bought a car and that's a capital item. And then you uh, you took out some loans and that's another $30,000. And that's why your taxable income is 100000 Now, if you say that to another accountant, he'll understand, he or she will understand that. You say that to a layperson, they don't know mm. what you're talking about. So you've got to really bring it right down to a really basic language that the client understands. So mm. you'd have to say something like, now, Mr. Client, I know you've got no money in the bank, but you've got $100,000 in people that owe you money, right? And then you've got some costs that you owe to other people. They're called creditors. And then you bought a car. And that car, whilst it's taken money out of the bank account, you've still got to pay tax on it, all right? So you've got to really distill it down to the level of understanding of that person. Not everybody mm. can do that. When the client is upset, to stay calm, not to start to stutter. Yes. It's, the main communication challenge is converting technical terms into layman's terms. That is the biggest challenge, and not everybody can do that. I mean, you know, I've been in this game long enough, and, you know, there's some really, really good accountants, really, really, really good accountants out there, but they just can't communicate. But in this team structure, you would not, you know, discard them because in the right seat, they're fantastic. But if you're looking for this superstar with everything and you discard them, then you've lost a really, really, really good person, but you're just trying to put them in the wrong seat. So our model accommodates all the different skill sets and we embrace them, whereas a lot of firms won't embrace them because they, their ideal person is a different person to mm. what we have. Is it better to just pay at market or is it better to just pay slightly above market? I find that if you hire people that's after money and not based on production, there's two types of employee. One will come to you and I call them an inflow person. They, it's all about them. What can I do for them? You know, uh, what's my package? What's me, 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 me? They're not really interested in production. Now, the other kind of an employee is an outflow person and they're interested in aligning their their remuneration to their production. So they'll say something like, and this isn't you know in every case, of course, but it comes down to attitude. They'll be more concerned about whether they can do the job and whether they can add value to your organisation. And then they'll say something like, not in every case, obviously, but it will be more around like, you know, you know, based on what I can do for you, then you can determine the salary for me. That outflow people because they're focused on production and uh, their production should be aligned, their, their remuneration should be aligned to their production. So we pay obviously market salary because you obviously have to pay market salary and then we build bonuses around the market salary. And generally, if you find the right person who's interested in production, salary is not an issue. Right. If you find someone who's an inflow person, then salary is always an issue. It's because they can't generally produce. And if they don't produce, they have to fight for a salary. Now, as an employer, if you've got someone there that is just hugely productive, why wouldn't you pay them more? Right. Because you're going to lose them. If you lose them, there's lots of bad people out there. So it doesn't make sense that a good employer would not pay a hugely productive person 
more. So the people who fight for a salary is because they generally can't produce and they have to fight for their salary. An inflow person knows that they won't get the bonus, so they really focus on the salary. Correct. An outflow person knows that they can meet KPIs, so they are interested in the bonus. Correct. Are they even interested in the bonus, or is the bonus just kind of something that pleasantly surprises them? Well, they generally push back on it because they know they're not going to produce. So the inflow people, the inflow people, yeah, they generally say things like, "Oh, I'm not really uh, motivated by a bonus." because they know they're not going to achieve it. Whereas the outflow people are really interested because they know they can produce it. So they're the kind of people you want. If you have the right kind of people, then, you know, the salary and all that is mm. not an issue. We increase their wages each year by CPI, but they're, you know, they, they make another amount based on their production, which is around bonuses. I prefer to pay a bonus to take them above the market salary And then that differentiates the really productive people from the non-productive people. Oh, I see. So the salary is at market value, and then the bonus will take them above market value. Correct. And if all KPIs are met, what percentage of the base salary is the bonus usually? It's more based on the team. So we have the team bonus. Okay, so let's say the team meets the top KPI. Mm -hmm. Would the bonus then be 10% of their salary or 50% of their salary, or 100% of their salary, how big is the bonus in comparison to the salary? I don't know that because each of the officers run their own bonus structure. But in the main, in the main, if I was making a 25% EBIT as a shareholder, so I'm getting a, a 25% return on my investment, I'm happy to share anything above that. So if they can achieve 25%, then let's say they achieve 28% EBIT, then I'm happy to share the 3% above my shareholders' return on investment with the team. So that's how I generally work it. Now, I don't work at that level anymore, ID, so I don't know what the Actually, officers do, but the theory is are those KPIs. So as a shareholder, you know, if I can get a 25% return, anything above that, I'm happy to share. And then it's up to the individual officers to determine how much of that they should share. casual employees you have against permanent? We don't have many casuals. I, I prefer permanent employees. I see. And then mm. how many full-time versus part-time? The same thing, yeah. We're mostly full-time, full -time, yes. Yes. And do you have any work from home? Uh, yes, we do. The grinders, uh, like, you know, basically all the people overseas, they all... Oh, yes, of course, they, they work, work from, from home, home. often. Yeah. So we do have that. The client managers know. The client managers need to be face-to-face -face with the clients. And, and that needs to happen in the office. Yeah, so the, the answer to it is yes, we do, but they have to be the grinders rather than the minders. The minders is, it needs to be in the office. I can't stress enough that you've got to get the blueprint right. If you don't get the blueprint right, you'll end up hiring the wrong staff. It's not the staff that you've hired that's the problem. It's just that they haven't fitted in with your blueprint. And people don't like, when they come to work for you, they want to know a structure to work within. So they know they want to know what they're responsible for and what their outcomes that they're responsible for and how it works. 
if you don't have that structure and you expect them to develop that structure for you, it's not going to happen. So you need to have that structure. So I can't say that strongly enough. Again, you know, if you want to know that structure, go into the WISE vault, the WISE mentoring vault and everything. There's over 150 documents and tools and videos on how to do everything in a counselling practice. And then you've got to have, you've got to run a capacity planner so that um, you know what the capacity is before you go and hire new staff. Actually, I'll, I'll cover this point. Often employers, when I ask them, you know, when do you know when to hire a new staff? And he or she would say, oh, when everybody complains, it's too much work on. And I'd say to them, well, you know, when the work comes in peaks and troughs, when it's at a peak, everybody complains. But when it's at a trough, nobody complains. And if you don't work out your capacity, you could easily be over capacity because when the work drops off, nobody complains. They'll find work to do because grind, that's what grinders do. They you can put them in a room with nothing to do and they'll find something to do because they just like being busy and that's not being productive. And as an example of that is I, I was working with one particular firm and I, I asked him that question and he said, oh, when, when everybody's, uh, everybody complains. And then, so anyway, we did a production plan for him. He was $200,000 over production, which meant that he was $200,000 less in profits. And he looked at me bewildered and he said, how can that be? They look, they all look really busy. But that's the trick is when, when there's a peak, everybody complains. When it drops off, they all find things to do and they all keep themselves busy. So you need this tool to help manage their expectations because they don't know. They require you to lead. And with the capacity planner, it's not just matching capacity with your workload. It's also working out the resource mix. It's a capacity mix uh, between your capacity mix with your turnover. So, for example, your client managers are not as productive as your grinders. The grinders are like 90% productive and the client managers are only 50% productive because they're doing training, they're doing Meaning managing. 50% of the time is charged to clients. Correct. So you need to get the resource mix right as well as the capacity. And again, it's in the WISE vault. The, the spreadsheet for the capacity planner is in there. And you can, if you're a member of WISE Mentoring, you can download that. That's all free of charge. And there's a video instruction on explaining how to use it. I'll leave that as a last thought. Welcome back. So it all depends on the blueprint. We need to start with the blueprint in mind and then look for the right personality traits. In the next episode, episode 205, Ed Chen will talk about why the partnership model doesn't work. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.